0: The energy. I am done talking about Mac Jones. As far as I am concerned, Mac Jones is no longer on the New England Patriots.
1: The passion.
0: I am very, very happy that the state of Vermont has legalized sports gambling. I just don't know if after my weekend, I can partake in it anymore. The opinions on all your favorite teams. This isn't Craig Breslow's fault. The Red Sox are not the Red Sox of old, but it's an ownership directive. Direct your anger at them. This is the Brady Farkas show on WDEB AM FM and WDEBradio.com. What's up everybody? A very happy Thursday here on the Brady Farkas show WDEB AM and FM and WDEBradio.com. We got a shorter show tonight, but not super short. We're on for 75 minutes or so. We're up till 6:45 and it's high school basketball Brent Curtis on the call there. We got a two guest show. This is a this is like the, the the rarest of rare like this is like sasquatch in the wild stuff today Two guests on the show and back-to-back. Back. If I'm going to ever have two guests, I usually like to have one at the 5 o'clock, one at the 6 o'clock hour, but two guests today, back-to-back, to back, Buster only about 6.05, talking Red Sox with us and uh, continuing our talk with, with uh, Tom Karen yesterday. And then we'll have Freddie Coleman of ESPN Radio. I want to talk a little bit about the Celtics. I want to talk about uh, the NBA at large. I want to talk a little bit about the Patriots with, with uh, Freddie. He's going to be with us at about 6.20 or so. So two great guests in that 6 o'clock hour as we go up to high school basketball. You can get in on the text line, 802-585-3026. I am here. Corm is here. Danny is out today. Danny is at the Celtics game. I feel bad for Danny because Danny's at the Celtics game, and that should be great. LeBron and Anthony Davis are both not playing in that game for the Lakers. So Danny's there to see the Celtics. He's a diehard Celtics fan. But to say you saw LeBron would be a – would be a great moment in your fandom, right? To be able to tell the story. Hey, I saw LeBron play. Hell, hell, maybe this is his last year, right? I don't think it's going to be because he wants to play with his kid, but hey, I saw LeBron play in one of his last years. I saw LeBron play in his rookie year. I have been to two NBA regular season games in my life. One of them was a LeBron game. I went to a Hornets-Bucks game when I lived in North Carolina and I went to Cavs-Nets in New Jersey or at the, you know, in the Meadowlands area in LeBron's rookie season, like one of his first, it was in January of his rookie year. And that is a story that I will always have. I saw LeBron play in his rookie season. So Danny's not going to get to see LeBron or Anthony Davis today. He's going to get to see the Celtics and a watered-down version of the Lakers. I feel bad for him in that. Now Davis is hurt. He appears to really be hurt. We got Peter in Plattsburgh on the text line who's crushing LeBron and Davis for not playing in this game. Davis appears to be hurt, right? Like I saw on social media, he's got a hip issue. He, he really isn't feeling well. He really isn't moving well. This is actually the first game all season that both Davis and LeBron won't be playing at the same time. So this appears to be more um legitimate than manufactured or than load management. Like I'm all for complaining about guys, you know, skipping games unnecessarily. In AD's case, this appears to be... A real injury that he's dealing with now LeBron has a left ankle issue is he completely hurt no I wouldn't say so based on the reports this is also the third game in four days for the Lakers and LeBron is in his 21st season I I can't really get too mad at LeBron for this either I feel bad for Danny I feel bad for the fans that want to see LeBron and it is unfortunate That LeBron is missing a game here on the East Coast in a place they only go, you know, once a season. I wish the schedule, you know, they could have planned this day off in a different spot, but three games in four days for a guy who's playing his 21st year and LeBron has given more to this league than anybody else in it. I have a hard time getting on him for not playing tonight. So feel bad for Danny. Hope he has a great time. Hopefully the Celtics can win this one by 22 and make it comfortable and he can have a stress-free watching experience but yeah disappointing to not see lebron again buster at about 50 at 605 freddie at about 620 text line
1: open we're all here Lego. five four three two one and here
0: we go the opening thoughts on the Brady Farka Show were brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They are online at sticksandstuff.com. The texters appear to be trying to break news to us, so now I have to uh, verify this as well. Here you go. This is uh, just into the newsroom here. About 45 seconds ago, the Patriots are hiring former – Cleveland Browns offensive coordinator Alex Van Pelt to be their next offensive coordinator Tom Pellicero of the NFL network had that uh, had that report out first so so Alex Van Pelt formerly of the Browns got let go this off season by Kevin Stefanski the head coach in Cleveland I don't have a full resume on Alex Van Pelt in front of me he was a quarterback for a number of years he was with the Bengals for a while as a coach now he's with the Browns I think if you look at it, the Browns did a – I think Alex Van Pelt did a pretty good job overall with what he had to work with in Cleveland, right? Because you look at it, and that's a team that played with five different quarterbacks this year and still found a way to make the playoffs. Alex Van Pelt at some point gets credit for that, right? They played with Deshaun Watson. They played with Dorian Thompson-Robinson. They played with Joe Flacco. They played with P.J. Walker. And they played with Jeff Striscoll at the end of the season. They played with five different quarterbacks, and they won games, I believe, with three or four of them and made the playoffs and were a threat. Now, I know they got railroaded in the end by Houston, but that's a Houston team we think is pretty good, and it's still at the end of the day it is still Joe Flacco. But Alex Van Pelt is the Patriots' new offensive coordinator. That is just in to the Brady Farkas show. Um, Here is what I hope is the case. I hope that Alex Van Pelt can bring some of what the Cleveland Browns did stylistically and offensively to the Patriots' offense. I look at this Browns team over the last several years, and I think that is a power football team. That is a run-first football team. That is a team that has some attitude. That is a team that can win in cold weather. That is a team that can win kind of independent of the quarterback in some spots. That is a team that has a physical attitude to it. But, Brady, you've been saying all along you want a modern offense. But, Brady, you've been saying all along you want the Patriots to throw. I do, eventually. But here's what I really want. I want the Patriots to draft a quarterback – in the first round at number three. With that, they're going to be a rookie. I do not want to expose my rookie quarterback to 50 drop backs a game and a subpar offensive line and see him get killed like David Carr got killed for the Texans back in 2001. That is not my goal. My goal is to insulate my quarterback from problems. My goal is to protect my quarterback from problems. My quarterback or my goal is to help raise my quarterback up. And the way I can do that in his rookie season is with a beefed-up offensive line, with a good running attack, with a physical nature in which I can use the tight end, like Cleveland used David Njoku, and I can protect my quarterback from harm. And then, once I have perfected that, well, now in year two, I can really start to work off things. Right? I can really start to work off things. Just because you are run first and protective in year one doesn't mean you always have to be this way. Now, the Cle- Alex Van Pelt was not the only play caller in Cleveland for the last several years, right? Kevin Stefanski also called plays. But I have seen that system win with Baker Mayfield and win with Deshaun Watson and play with Jacoby Percet and have some degree of success. They've done it with Nick Chubb. They've done it without Nick Chubb. They've done it with Kareem Hunt. They've done it with Ford. A lot of guys there in Cleveland have been a part of the offense in the last couple of years, and I would like to see that similar of an offense here in 2024 with the New England Patriots. 802-585-3026, your reaction. Okay, your reaction. It's not Nick Kaley at the end of the day, a guy that we thought it was going to be. Andrew Callahan, we played it for you in the afternoon news service, saying that Nick Kaley was the first favorite. Well, ultimately, he he's not the guy getting the job. Right? He's not the guy getting the job. Alex Van Pelt is. Former NFL quarterback, been with the Browns, offensive coordinator this past season, helped him get to the playoffs. I want toughness. I want swagger. I want um, own the line of scrimmage. I want all of that in this Patriots team in 2024. And I was thinking about this, too. It took a long time to get to this point, right? took a long time to get to this point in terms of the Patriots hiring an offensive coordinator. And initially, I was – kind of growing unsettled by how long the process was taking. And I started to think to myself, man, do they, nobody wants the job. What's wrong with the patch? Are they really that unappealing? And then earlier today, I kind of had an epiphany that it was okay that it took this long. It was all right that – it went this way, or that at least we didn't have an answer here. The season ended for the Patriots three weeks ago. We still didn't have an answer on the offensive coordinator. That was okay because this hire is incredibly important. That This hire is everything for the Patriots. There is a ton of pressure on Alex Van Pelt. There is a massive amount of pressure on him. The Patriots are likely going to draft a quarterback at number three, and the organization's fate is going to be in that quarterback's hands. Right? That quarterback is either going to be the savior of the organization who propels it forward for the next decade or that quarterback is going to be a bust that sets it back for the next 5 years. Okay? The quarterback the Patriots draft is everything to the organization. The offensive coordinator who works with him is secondarily you know massively important to what happens in this organization moving forward. Gerard Mayo, the Patriots' new head coach, is a defensive guy, right? Defensive rookie of the year when he played with the Patriots. A longtime linebacker. Guy who has coached linebackers. He is not an offensive guru. He is not a guy who's going to work with the offense. So he cannot run the quarterback. Alex Van Pelt's going to run the quarterback. That's how important this is. The quarterback's the most important position in On your team, the most important position in sports, and your head coach essentially will have nothing to do with him and his development. The offensive coordinator will have everything to do with it. This hire was massive. And as far as it taking a while, I went from being worried and upset about that to being, you know what, do it thorough, do it right, because it's that important. I hope Alex Van Pelt ends up being that guy. This is a guy that has experience, this is a guy who's done it in a cold-weather place, in a tough division, in this conference, with a multitude of quarterbacks and with quarterbacks that play different styles. There is a lot to like about Alex Van Pelt, and this is just surface-level knowledge right now. right? You have one offense for P.J. Walker. You have one offense for Dorian Thompson-Robinson. You have one offense for Deshaun Watson. You have one offense for Joe Flacco. And Alex Van Pelt found a way to make all of it work. That is something that is appealing to me. Now, I love the idea of a first-time 32-year-old hotshot. I do. I've said that from the start. The next McVeigh, the next Shanahan. But when you have a guy that's relatively young, and Alex Van Pelt is, a guy who has had the title before, a guy who has been in a place in kind of turmoil before, which Cleveland has been in, and a guy who's done it overcoming injuries, overcoming offensive line injuries, a guy who's done it with a running game, a guy who's done it with the play-action pass, and a guy who's done it for a mobile quarterback and a statue quarterback. That kind of variety, that kind of versatility, that is something that appeals to me. Ultimately, my first reaction today is that Gerard Mayo has made a good hire. Mark Daniels of uh, Mass Live says Alex Van Pelt was in Gillette Stadium today for an interview clearly Gerard Mayo liked what he heard this came after the Patriots had multiple players in or excuse me multiple candidates in for in-person interviews text says um, Alex Van Pelt is a really good hire that's a outside voice for the Patriots he did a great job with the with Flacco um And staying in-house with the offensive coordinator would have been bad. Mayo was smart to get an outside hire, guy who had a highly successful offense in Cleveland, basically everything we just said, right, basically everything we just said. That is um, very good stuff there, very good stuff there. I am uh, thus far very, very impressed with this hire. And I can't wait to have more reaction and hear more of what people are saying on the show tomorrow. But my first gut reaction tells me Gerard Mayo just made a very good hire. The other thing though, this is the other side of the coin, and just, it's just a generality here. This is potentially the negative in having Gerard Mayo as your head coach. Gerard Mayo's a defensive guy, right? He's not gonna be able to, he's not gonna be the offensive guru for the quarterback. I just said that. So whoever the offensive coordinator is, you run a risk of the offensive coordinator coming in and being good for two years and then trying to get their own thing, right? And you run this risk of every two years losing your coordinator to the point where and, and the head coach can't be there to save the day, right? The head coach can't be there to keep the messaging the same, right? Sean McVay keeps losing his coaches, Kyle Shanahan loses his coaches. Well, those guys, hey, okay, fine, I lose an offensive coordinator, okay, fine, it's still my system, it's still my verbiage, I've taught it, I can I can run the offense. That's not the case in New England, right? That's not the case for Gerard Mayo. So the risk in having Mayo is that Van Pelt comes in, does a great job for two years, and then he's out, and then my quarterback has another new voice. Now, maybe Van Pelt is less likely to get a head coaching job in the future, right? He's already been fired as an offensive coordinator. He's already been let go. So maybe he's not a super hot candidate for a future head coaching job. But if he comes in and, you know, takes the Patriots to a good offensive team, people are going to be calling his name. And you run that risk. I started thinking about that earlier. I was like, because they were talking about Dan Quinn in Washington. And they were like, well, if Dan Quinn – has a good offensive coordinator, a guy who develops the number two pick in the draft, and that guy leaves in two years, well, Dan Quinn's kind of screwed, right, because Dan Quinn isn't an offensive guy. Well, Gerard Mayo, I was like, that's the same thing as Gerard Mayo, right? He's not an offensive guy either. And uh, that is certainly something to be watching for. Certainly something to be watching for. 802-585-3026. Let me talk about this idea of culture. Because we had heard, right, all the guys the Patriots were interviewing, not all of them, but some of the more publicized Patriots offensive coordinator candidates were guys from the Rams, right? They had interviewed Kaylee. They had interviewed Zach Robinson, or they wanted to interview Zach Robinson. There was this idea that the Patriots wanted a McVay guy. They wanted somebody from out there. Well, Phil Perry of NBC Sports Boston, our guy, was talking about the idea that the Patriots might be trying to get a Sean McVay-style culture. Uh, a little bit more laid back, as you might expect, than they are here in New England. They value hard work. Sean McVay can be an intense guy, but very easy to work with. People don't, quote-unquote,
1: guard their desks, which I think assistants here in New England might say that has been happening over the course of a long period of time. I don't want to leave work because the boss hasn't left work yet, but I'm really done with all my work, so I'm not sure what I'm doing here, but if I leave, I might get fired. That doesn't exist in L.A. I think there's a lot more of an L.A. vibe.
0: So that's all well and good, and ultimately the Patriots did not go with a Sean McVay guy, right? They go with a guy who had just been in Cleveland, and and that's fine. But this idea of the Patriots trying to bring in another culture, I, I didn't like that idea. Because Gerard Mayo is the head coach. Gerard Mayo is supposed to establish the culture. It's not supposed to be, hey, i got to bring in guys from McVay's culture. It's I want to establish my way of doing things, and I want to fit guys that go my way. Now, again, we're going to find out over the next three years how good Gerard Mayo is, but he deserves the right to set his culture and set his way of doing things and then bring in coaches that fit that. If Nick Cayley or Zach Robinson or Alex Van Pelt fit what Mayo wants to do, then – Great. But if they're trying to just pick from other cultures and take pieces of them, that wouldn't have been the right way to attack this. So I'm glad that they didn't just say, okay, we took him just because he could bring us some of what McVay's secret sauce was. That that wouldn't have been the right way of doing things. My gut tells me that part of Gerard Mayo's culture moving forward is going to be very, very physical and very, very hard-nosed. Right? That's We got the hire ten minutes ago. That's my first assessment. Maybe I'll be wrong. Maybe someone will go through the night and, and I'll grab a bunch of audio tomorrow with people saying they're gonna be a, they're gonna be a pass first team and throw it 70 times a game and it's gonna look like the Big 12. I don't think that's gonna be the case. My gut tells me that they will be a physical team, that they will try to own the line of scrimmage, that Gerard Mayo will use his toughness and his defensive mindset to play in the trenches. And then Alex Van Pelt will figure out a way to run the football, to get his offensive line up to snuff, which the Patriots haven't had the last few years, and then they will find a way to utilize play action. That, that is what I want, right? The Cleveland Browns made the playoffs with Baker Mayfield and made the playoffs this year as a run-first team who utilized play action. Right, There were still big plays, there were still shot plays, there were shots down the field, there were shots in the middle. The Browns had Njoku, the Browns had Amari Cooper. The Browns found a way still to get the ball down the field. The Tennessee Titans at one point got the number one seed in the AFC with Ryan Tannehill, Derrick Henry, and deep shots to A.J. Brown. That's what I want for the Patriots this year. We could move beyond that in year two, but I think in year one, you're going to see a reemphasis on physicality and on owning the line of scrimmage, and all that comes with that. I think Gerard Mayo is going to be aggressive when it comes to getting after the quarterback, and I think that Alex Van Pelt is going to be aggressive when it comes to shoving the ball down your throat. And I think Ramondre Stevenson will be a big part of it. Maybe Ezekiel Elliott will be a big part of it. I think the offensive line will be an emphasis, and I think the Patriots will need at least one big downfield threat in 2024. Are they going to go from 4 and 13 to 13 and 4 in one year? Likely not. But can they go from 4 and 13 with essentially no offense to um you know 9 and 8 and looking representative? Yeah, I think they probably could. And I think Alex Van Pelt seems to be a good hire um, you know in the effort towards getting there. I'm going to pull up social media here and see what kind of the general reaction is to Alex Van Pelt hiring. Um, Just see what the people are saying. Go to kind of all the usual suspects here. Um, Okay. Van Pelt was a glue guy for the Browns staff. So that came from Albert Breer. So. He's talking about, Breer, or Breer's talking about Van Pelt being a key guy on that Brown staff, even though they, um, you know, even though they moved on from him. Van Pelt, this comes from Henry McKenna of Fox Sports. Alex Van Pelt was never the team's primary play caller, okay? So that's interesting. He has been a part of systems, right, been a part of multiple systems and multiple quarterbacks in Cleveland but he's never been the primary play caller. Stefanski had COVID. He called plays, but he's never been the primary play caller. That is something to watch. He has seen systems work. He's worked with a lot of quarterbacks, but he's never had to have it all on him. That's an interesting distinction. Um, he's been an assistant coach in the NFL since 2006, so he is a little older than I thought he was. In my mind, Alex Van Pelt was not playing that long ago. Apparently, I've Gotten old fast. Um, Van Pelt told the Browns media a couple months ago, one of the things we strive to do offensively is to stay multiple and versatile and make teams defend multiple looks, multiple personnel groupings, multiple formations. I like to hear that. Browns would play with Cooper. They could play with two running backs. They could play with three tight ends. The Browns were, I thought, difficult to defend, despite sometimes their limitation at quarterback, right? They were limited at quarterback at times uh but they i do like that methodology from van pelt uh elsewhere what people are saying let's see let's go um, only one interview for van pelt that's the definition of a strong interview okay um weei in boston has this to say here's the resume for van pelt buccaneers quarterbacks coach Packers running back coach, Bengals quarterback coach, last four seasons with the Browns as the offensive coordinator. Again, not the primary play caller. That is something to watch. He has the resume. He has the experience. He played the position. I imagine that he can call plays, but he has not done it habitually at the NFL level. Again, though, he has worked with several quarterbacks under multiple systems, multiple ways. That, to me, probably outweighs the lack of play-calling experience. At least that's what I'm telling myself right now. Um, And, yeah, overall, I'm, I'm happy with this. I was prepared to not be happy with it, but overall I'm happy with it. You get a guy who's been in the league for more than a decade, for almost 20 years, a guy who played the position, a guy who's been on playoff situations, a guy who's been in rebuild situations, a guy who has a lot of experience with a lot of different quarterbacks in a lot of different areas, and a guy who's shown that he can get the best out of multiple guys. Right? The Browns, again, five different quarterbacks this year. They got the best out of a subpar quarterback situation. And just because he's never been the primary play caller, I think that that is okay. I think that that is okay. Um, Do you think they'll go after Marvin Harrison Jr. in the draft? I... I think they could. I'm not trying to be a cop-out. I have said I think the Patriots should draft a quarterback at the number three pick, right? I believe they should draft a quarterback at the number three pick. If they draft a quarterback number three, they're not getting Marvin Harrison. If they don't believe in any of the quarterbacks enough to draft them at three, then yes, I think that they will go after Marvin Harrison, right? Like if they can't. If they don't like Drake May or Jaden Daniels at three, then I think Harrison is absolutely a guy that they'll, that they'll look at and go for. But, um, you know, if you're going to sign Kirk Cousins and then go get Harrison, if you're going to trade for, if you're going to sign Russell Wilson and then go, you can draft Harrison. If you want to trade for Justin Fields potentially, you can go draft Harrison. So, that is definitely on the table. My first choice is liking a quarterback enough to make that the play, but I, you know, I don't know if they will in fact like the quarterback enough to execute that play. They may not. Um, alright, 802-585-3026. Reminder, Buster Only 605, we're gonna deviate from Patriot stuff and talk baseball. And then, at about 620, you're gonna hear from Freddie Coleman. Now, Freddie is on the air himself right now. So Freddie and I taped this interview earlier today. As a result, you will not hear me ask questions about the Patriots' offensive coordinator situation. We talked about the NBA. We did talk a little bit about the Pats, but we did not talk about the offensive coordinator situation because the Alex Van Pelt hiring just happened. So just so you know, the Freddie interview came earlier today, and that's fine. We love talking to Freddie, and we'll have plenty of reaction more on the show tomorrow. Tomorrow... We're going to talk with Ross Tucker. Ross Tucker, former NFL offensive lineman, is going to be on the show. We'll get his reaction to Alex Van Pelt and kind of what he wants to see from the Patriots moving forward as well. Um, As we get ready to deviate from the Patriots and get to Buster, I do want to remind you, a couple big games tonight, a couple big games locally. UVM men's basketball, take it on UAlbany at home. I think that game's going to be tougher than people want it to be, tougher than I want it to be. Right, I think the Catamounts will win. It's an Albany team. It's three and three in the league. That's 11 and 10 overall. They are tough. They're physical. They're athletic under Dwayne Killings this year. Um, they've really been bad the last several years since Will Brown left. They are better this year for sure, and they can do some interesting things. I think I think tonight at Patrick might be a game where we're all a little on edge. I, if I had to pick the final, I'd say UVM wins this game 68 to 61. Still win. Win by seven. But I don't think it's a double digit win today. Women's game will be phenomenal. That game's gonna be at Albany at seven. Battle for first place. Cannot wait for that. I'm gonna watch every minute of both of those games. Alright, I'm gonna watch every minute both of those games side by side. And it'll be a lot of fun. Alright, Buster Olney of ESPN is gonna join us next. We'll talk a little baseball on the Brady Farkas show on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVRadio.com.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Welcome back again, Brady Farkas show right here on this Thursday, WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVRadio.com. Slightly shorter show tonight, we're up till about 6.40 or so, then it's high school basketball coverage. Brent Curtis on the call in the uh, high school season, and It just keeps coming, right? Like it's all, like it's, in one way it's almost over, but every night I feel like we have a game that truncates us a little bit, although last night it was Norwich Hockey. We're gonna get to Buster Olney here in a minute, man. I, we were just talking about it, but I am so jacked up for tonight's UVM games against you Albany specifically the women i think the, you know the the women do not get the billing that the men get i think that they should and i think tonight they definitely should because that is the marquee matchup not only for for our two teams but for the american east as a whole right like you have a rematch of the conference title game from a year ago you have the two teams that are at the top of the league right now, now Maine is tied with UVM as well. But if UVM wins this game, they're going to move into first place, uh, at least to tie for first place, depending on what Maine does. Uh, I mean, this is, this is a marquee matchup, and I'm pumped to watch it. I'm going to be watching every minute of that game. I'm going to watch every minute of the men's game as well. I hate when... UVM plays Albany on the men's side, a little less so now, right? Like, I'm from Albany, my brother went to Albany, I used to work at Albany, I used to cover Albany. I was on the floor when Peter Hooley hit the magical shot against Stony Brook to send them to the NCAA tournament. You know, now at this point, like, eight, nine years ago, so I've always had a soft spot for Albany. Now as I get further removed from all that stuff and more ingrained with UVM, obviously I've become a much bigger UVM fan. But early on, for me, it was, it was a conflict, right? It was head versus heart. And, uh, you know, to, to be at Patrick Jim and see the Americas title game my first year here when a bunch of you Albany guys I knew were still on the team and Will Brown was still the coach, like it was hard for me. And, uh, you know, again, not so much now. I don't know this coach, Dwayne Killings, at all for you, Albany. But in general, like, I just hate this matchup on the men's side every year because it's two programs I have a big association with. Now, certainly, always team UVM. But at the beginning, it was uh, it was tough for me. It is, uh I think the men's game will be interesting, right? Beagle down low, as Brian McLaughlin told us a handful of days ago, is a real big problem. And UVM is susceptible at times to being beaten down low. Hopefully, A'Leary Avalier can stay out of trouble and uh, foul trouble, I should say, and you know UVM can start shooting a little better than they have in the last couple of games. You know, five for 25 from three against Lowell just isn't going to cut it. And then, you know, against Bryant, they still struggled in the second half, or in the first half, I should say, second half, they were better. So we'll see what happens. But the women's game is really the one uh, taking center stage. All right, uh, I want to get to Buster Olney here. Buster is on the phone line with us now, Corm tells me. So we have flipped a calendar, It is February 1st. I continue to hammer the Red Sox, but as I hammer the Red Sox, I am still very, very excited about baseball season beginning. We are in the month of pitchers and catchers reporting. We are in the month of position players reporting. We are in the month of game starting. All of it is happening this month. It's going to be less than two weeks until the Red Sox are in Fort Myers for pitchers and catchers reporting. On that note, let's go out to the phone line and bring on Buster Olney, our ESPN MLB insider, who's with us now. Buster, how are you?
1: I'm doing great, Brady. Uh, excited. Yeah, made my, uh, plane reservations to go, to go to Florida and to see teams and, uh, it fired up. As we hit, right around the corner.
0: As we hit February 1st, I'm still flummoxed by the idea that the Kansas City Royals have spent a hundred million dollars in free agency and the Red Sox have spent essentially nothing.
1: And, you know, to have Justin Turner leave the <laughs> yeah. franchise now and to go to the Blue Jays and you know, Peter Gammons, of course, is, I think, is, is trusted as much as anyone in baseball. And for him to, you know, write yesterday that, uh, Justin Turner's camp had reached out to the Red Sox and basically been like, Hey, can, can we work something out? You know, can, can we do something? And basically have been rebuffed just tells you about where the Red Sox are. Justin Turner was a good player for them last year. Um, uh, you know, it's a one year contract, uh, you know, there's so much that he can bring to a table, that he can bring, uh, to the lineup, he can bring to the, you know, to a clubhouse, and yet they apparently don't have the money for him. And I, it, it just makes you shake your head, uh, and make you wonder about the future of the franchise.
0: It's certainly, uh, a bad week for the Red Sox and a string of bad weeks. Turner goes to a division rival. The Orioles get sold, or the announcement happens that they're going to get sold. And this Orioles ownership doesn't spend almost any money. This new ownership might. The, the, the bar continues to get pushed further and further away from the Sox, it looks like.
1: The Orioles are the sleeping giant of baseball, and they may have just woken up. Uh, with this sale that, uh, you know, has been agreed upon, the Orioles have, uh, the best young group of, uh, best group of young players in baseball. When you talk about Adley Rutchman and Gunnar Henderson and Jackson Holliday and others, they have basically no long-term payroll obligations as the new ownership comes in, uh, and all they can do is grow. And even in this moment, you know, they're, and I've seen this happen in baseball before, that before an ownership group is formally approved by the other owners, they can give a wink-wink, nod-nod and basically say, look, we, we want to make a splash. Go get this guy. Go trade for that guy. I think Jordan Montgomery would be a perfect signing for the Orioles right now. You know, Blake Snell, potentially a guy to look at. Uh, maybe the Orioles go trade for Dylan Cease. Uh, this becomes a, an absolutely dangerous team moving forward, even more dangerous than a team, you know, than the team that won 101 games last year. And if you're the, you know, the Red Sox right now, and you're basically just folding hands, not really participating, uh, you've seen the Yankees, you know, be aggressive this winter. You've seen uh you know, the Tampa Bay Rays continue to do what they do. And I I think I mentioned to you last week that I talked with an executive who still has the Rays is the most dangerous team, uh, based on, you know, analytical studies within the division. And of course the Blue Jays have some good players. I, I it is just uh it's absolutely mind boggling. You know what uh, what the the Red Sox are going to be up against in the next couple of years.
0: You know, Buster, it's this is not the Brady Farkas Seattle Mariners hour, but just for a second, um, I've spent a lot of time personally, you know, hammering what the Mariners have done or not done this off season because of their alleged financial constraints. But that said. Jerry Depoto has gone out and tried to at least be creative, given the budget that he has. Right, he's traded for Luke Rayleigh, he's brought back Mitch Haniger. They go get Jorge Polanco. That's a team allegedly on a budget trying to be creative to figure out ways to still be competitive in 2024. And the Red Sox, who are allegedly on a budget, can't figure out, uh, aren't willing to do the exact same thing. It's very frustrating, Buster.
1: Well, and you do wonder with the you know what what was said over the course of the off season if we saw some significant change you know during the winter time, maybe Craig Breslow was given a budget uh you know target when he took over the job, and maybe that number was lower during the winter. I don't know for sure it certainly feels that way in in different things they've done um and I agree with you, it takes some imagination you've heard this, you've read this that you know, that the, uh, the Mariners are, are re- really, would like to add Blake Snell, who might turn out to be the most expensive pitcher in the starting pitching market. And so they're, you know, having conversations about moving different pieces around, moving salary around. Maybe they make it happen. I think those are, are things worth exploring, uh, as opposed to sort of accepting your fate, uh, and, and thinking, you know, another guy that does that is AJ Preller, the Padres. Mm-hmm. Their payroll's been cut by a hundred million dollars. And so, you know, they trade Juan Soto. They add some pitching in that regard. They make other decisions. Now they're focused on adding the bullpen, some, uh, you know, some some more modestly priced pieces. I, I, I it is just um, shocking how little the Red Sox have done. It. And you and I have talked about this before. All of this at a time when Alex Cora is moving closer to the expiration of his contract. You know, typically in these situations. The you know the team makes the decision whether to keep the manager. I wonder if it's the case where the manager's going to make the choice whether or not to keep the team.
0: I, I was going to ask you that same question, Buster. That's exactly where I was going next. We're talking with Buster Olney of ESPN with us here on the Brady Farkas Show. I was going to ask you: Is this season ahead more about the organization proving something to Alex Cora, or is it more about Alex Cora proving something to the organization?
1: A hundred percent, it's about the organization proving something to Alex who is uh, considered to be one of the best managers in baseball. He's someone who is well-regarded. Uh I have no doubt, and I had a conversation with Tim Kirchner and, and Dan Shaughnessy recently about this, uh, you know, if he were to leave the Red Sox, he would get job offers immediately. Like he has that much stature in the game. And now that he has experience in a championship pedigree, uh yeah. And so if you're, you know if you're Alex now over the last 3 years they basically have done very little in a, the front office as in an attempt to win and you know ownership has not demonstrated that they want to win and here's Alex staring down the rest of that mountainous American League East landscape like we just talked about
0: the Blue Jays go get Turner, they would seem to be out. The Mariners go get Polanco, they seem to be out. We've talked about Jorge Soler, Buster. Tom Karen told us yesterday he thinks, despite the inactivity, the Red Sox will end up with one of Soler or Adam Duvall just because the number of suitors around them has kind of fallen off. Do you feel the same way?
1: Boy, well, it's a huge difference in price there. You know, Adam Duvall, because of all the injuries, Probably is looking at a one-year deal for you know I'm guessing under ten million dollars per year. Solaire hit is right in his prime. You know he's 31 years old. He hit 36 homers last year. If you're going to sign him, it's going to take a significant two-year deal. Uh, and, and look, if you're willing to talk about uh, you know Jorge Solaire, who's a DH first player, then maybe talk about JD Martinez. Then maybe talk about Joey Votto, Brandon Belt you know, potentially be another guy to look at if you're willing to look at those type of players, but it sounds like, you know, the Red Sox uh you want to whoever they add to be someone who's more playable in the field and, you know, more than J D Martinez is because of Yoshida's defensive deficiencies. So we'll we'll see. And I I I mean to me if if uh you go sign Adam Duvall who's a great guy, he's a great clubhouse guy, he plays hard, but given his recent injury history If you go and sign Adam Duvall, you're basically just taking the cheapest guy available in the marketplace.
0: We talked about this yesterday with TC also. You know, okay, we think the team, I think the team is headed for last place. The writing feels on the wall they're headed for last place. But even that said, there are still things to look forward to in this season. For me, the number one Red Sox storyline outside of wins and losses is the continued development of Tristan Casas, who I think is on the verge of becoming a star and a middle-of-the-order bat for the Red Sox. What kind of stands out to you in terms of other things to watch for other than just results?
1: Well, the big question is going to be how far they can go with the pitching. You know, that is, uh, you know, that is Craig Breslow's, uh, you know, area of expertise. And I think Andrew Bailey is terrific. Um, you know, the different people they've added and, and, and given the fact that it seems like they're devoted to go down this more modest path financially, they're going to have to get things for the buck from their pitching. And, you know, maybe that means Brian Bao becomes one of the best starters in the American league. Uh, maybe that means a resurgence of some of the other young guys who seem to have stalled the last couple of years, but to me that's the biggest question I, You know the unfortunate part is because of how this off season has played out, the two narratives that are going to hang over the team are uh full throttle yeah you know there's words that were uttered by tom uh, Tom Warner uh, early in the fall when uh, when Breslow was hired and the second being what we've talked about, and that is what's going to happen with Alex Cora, who right now is the face of the franchise.
0: Buster, let me get you out of here on a little story time slash a little life advice necessary from Buster, if, if you'll indulge with me oh, here. Oh, my goodness. So back in November, I was really thinking that Otani was going to go to the Blue Jays, right? They they needed him. They were hot on it. The reports were out. Otani's on the plane going to Toronto, et <laughs> I yes. bought I bought four tickets, to opening day in Toronto against the Mariners. And my assumption was if Otani goes there, I can sell the tickets and make a lot of money. And if Otani doesn't go there... I can just go see the Mariners play in a place I've never been. I'm trying to figure out whether or not I should actually go to Toronto and see these ga- see this game against my Mariners, or if I should just move on from the tickets and sell them to a Toronto local that wants to go to opening day. Have you ever been to a game in Toronto? What's it like? I've never been. I've always wanted to go. Is it worth me making the rather significant trip?
1: I've been to many games in Toronto, you know, having covered uh, the Orioles and the Yankees and the American League East, and so I may- would make a lot of trips there. I love that city. Uh, you already have the tickets. I think you'd be crazy not to go Sorry. because the city's awesome. You know, it's a new experience. It's almost like going to Europe in, in North America when you're, when you're in Toronto, take a, a walk along the water. It is a beautiful place. Uh, and it's a, it's a fun ballpark experience. And you know what? I think the Mariners are going to be in play next year. I do like the. The imagination that Jerry has used to sort of build that team and, uh, you know, and, and the ball and the crowd, you'll feel this when you're there. It has a great energy. Kind of reminds me a little bit of San Diego in terms of how they support their players.
0: A uh, a walk on the water in Toronto on April 8th. I can only imagine what that would be like. So oh looks...
1: come on, <laughs> come on! You gotta be positive here.
0: Gotta be positive. <laughs> I, I am. I am thinking about going. And maybe if uh, producer Danny and I can play hooky, maybe I'll take him too. Again, I've got four tickets, so we'll uh, see who wants to go with me to Toronto. But uh, it would be. Uh, I think it would be a fun experience. So uh, I'll report back on that, Buster. But. Uh, We'll get okay. through spring, we'll get through spring training first and, uh, we'll catch up in seven days as always.
1: That sounds great. I appreciate it, Brady. Alright,
0: that was Buster only, our ESPN will be insider. Um, Buster is phenomenal and a, a lot of good stuff in there to react to. Um, let me just do so kind of quickly here, point by point. The, the biggest side story of the Red Sox now is Alex Cora, right? There's all the, the internal development stuff, the pitching, as Buster said, Casas, as I say, story coming back, development of Raffaello, whoever, right? That stuff is all important. Alex Cora is the biggest side story in this organization right now. And I think Buster is 100% right. The Red Sox bear the brunt now of proving to Alex Cora that they are worthy of him. Cora has all the leverage here. Right, if the Red Sox go out and go, if the Red Sox go eighty-seven and seventy-five and surprise people and make the playoffs, Alex Cora is going to be looked at as a genius, right? Like the Patriots weren't very good. If the Patriots somehow went eleven and six with this roster this year, we'd look at their head coach Bill Belichick and be like, "Yeah, damn, he is the goat." Like, how did he get that team to do that? That's how Cora is going to be perceived, and he's going to have a bevy of suitors for him beyond the Red Sox. On the other side of things, if the Sox goes 75 and 87, he's still gonna have suitors and people are gonna say, yeah, you couldn't do much with that team, you couldn't do much with that organization, look what they've done to it. And he's still gonna have a bevy of suitors. And I, I, the thing I wanna know is, do the Red Sox want him? That's what I wanna know. Like, does Craig Breslow want him? Because it was very clear with High and Bloom here that, I think, I forget who said it, but, High and Bloom worked for the team. Alex Cora was part of the family, right? It was very clear that in a power struggle between Bloom and Cora, Cora was going to win. Sam Kennedy, John Henry, they love Cora. My question is, is how does Breslow feel about Cora? And what exactly happens there? Is there is there a power struggle again? Because there's three ways this can go, right? Breslow loves Cora. Cora loves Breslow, and they want to be together. There is... Ownership loves Cora still, and they are going to overrun Breslow if he doesn't love Cora or ownership has said, "Look, we love Cora, but do what you want, and we'll stand by you and then the Breslow's going to have a decision to make, but it's very, very interesting to see Alex Cora given a lame duck year here. And I think Cora probably ultimately is fine with it because now he's not tied down to anything his hands are not tied. He is in no position to be forced to do anything, and he's got a ton of leverage. He is going to have suitors at the end of the year. He's going to have a lot of them, and he's going to have big-money suitors at the end of the year. And I think he is in a great position because he's got everything you could want. He's got the leverage. He'll have the the offers in the offseason. He'll get better money in the offseason, no matter what it is. And he's either going to be looked at as the architect of taking a bad team and making it good, or he'll have the built-in excuse of, you know, ownership screwed everything up, and he had no chances. So I, that is going to be a massive story, and I wonder how it's going to hang over the Red Sox. Right? Manager stuff doesn't usually hang over a team throughout the whole season. The Xander Bogarts contract stuff did. The Mookie Betts trade did. stories have lingered with the Red Sox where it has been held over them for the entirety of a year. I wonder what's going to happen with Cora. I mean, if they start out... and the questions are going to come. Why doesn't he have a contract extension? If they start out 2-10, and are you going to get rid of them? Those questions are absolutely going to come. It will be a fascinating thing. The other thing that's interesting is the Justin Turner angle. And I actually had not seen that until Buster mentioned it. After Buster mentioned it, I I pulled it up on social media yesterday. Yesterday, early, early morning, 4.15 a.m. This is why I didn't see it. Peter Gammons wrote on Twitter, Turner and his representatives, Justin Turner, reached out but could not get the Red Sox interested enough to engage in talks. He will be a significant needed addition for the Blue Jays. Um None of that surprises me and it's jarring to hear but I actually don't think it's as big a deal potentially. Right? So let me let me pull that back layer by layer. It's not surprising to me at all, because Craig Breslow told us at the beginning of the offseason that he believes the the DH should be a rotational position. He said, basically, unless you have a Hall of Famer like David Ortiz, you want flexibility at designated hitter. We can disagree or not, but that's what he said. That's what I've gone on. I never thought Turner was coming back from that day forward, and I've been proven right, right? Everyone who thought that's been proven right. I think he wants to utilize DH in a way that gets people off their feet. Is Trevor's stories arm going to be able to play 162 games this year, doubtful. He needs some time at DH. Do they want to keep Devers off his feet? Yeah, probably. Do they want to get, you know, Casas at DH and somebody else at first potentially, especially if they go out and sign – You know, somebody else here? Yeah, probably. They've got a million outfielders, right? Yoshida, not a great defender. He's gonna need time at DH. Do they want to get if they do sign Duvall or Soler, do they they gotta get them at DH? So they're ref Snyder playing against lefties. So I've never thought that Turner was coming back. So this is this is consistent with what we were told months ago. For all the garbage we've been given about the Red Sox about full throttle, this one, Craig Breslow said early and was true to. They view the DH in this way. Justin Turner doesn't fit that agenda. Okay, moving on. It's jarring to hear because the Red Sox don't seem to be in a position to be turning down good players, right? The I heard a quote from Ken Rosenthal, and we played in the afternoon news service, right? Like, From what he hears, people don't want to come to the Red Sox. Buster has talked about the Red Sox not being desirable. So the Red Sox can't get guys that we want them to get. Here is a good player who had a good year, who liked his experience, who has said, I want to come back, and the Red Sox have turned him down. Right? That's like somebody that can't get a date, that's begging for a date. Finally, some some girl comes up and asks him out, and he says no. You're like, that guy's an idiot. Right, You've been begging for a date, you've been wanting a date, you can't get a date to the prom, can't get a date on Saturday night. Here's this woman, beautiful, comes up to you, asks you to go out, and you still say no. Right? It's jarring to hear you roll your eyes at that guy and go, okay, put my hands up, I can't do anything for you. Why do I think it's not as big a deal? Well, because I think the Red Sox have their plan at DH. And I think, you know they can find a way to navigate that, right? I have to hope that a healthy Trevor Story can do a lot of what Justin Turner did. Now, is is Story going to get 100 RBIs? I don't know. Is he going to hit 20 home runs? I don't know. But I got to hope that basically having Story for a full year can offset not having Turner or come very, very close to it and then you throw in the added production from Casas, I think you would go over it. So I like Turner. He was great. He was great for the clubhouse, good leadership. He was very good uh, production. I'm going to pull up here exactly Turner's numbers. I mean, he hit, I want to say he hit 276 last year. Yeah, he did, 276, 23 homers, 96 RBIs. I don't know that Story's going to get that. In fact, I don't think he is. But I have to hope that a guy I'm paying $140 million to can get close to that. Then you add in Casas. Then you add in you a know, better year from Yoshida across the board. I don't think it's as big a loss. Buster about you no know, TC thinks they might get Soler. Buster seems a little less bullish on that. The only thing you have to hope for now if you're the Red Sox is that the players get antsy. Right? The players get antsy. We are two weeks from pitchers and catchers. Less than two weeks. We're less than three weeks from position players coming. Guys want jobs. So if Solaire wanted, you know, 4 for 80, will he now take 1 for 18 just for the sake of having a job? I don't know. The Red Sox might be able to swoop in in a situation like that and get him. I don't think they'll get Solaire. I think they are more likely to get Duvall, given the price point, as Buster said. I think Duvall played for $7 with the Red Sox last year. It's going to be less than that this year. He's a year older, and he had another year of injuries. I like Duvall. I don't love Duval. I think they're more likely to get him. I do think he can be productive when he plays, but I wouldn't count on him to play more than half the season. So, but maybe a guy like Solaire gets antsy and says, I want a job and I'm willing to take one. And we'll see what happens. But uh either way, <laughs> I think the Red Sox are destined for last place. Um There are interesting stories, there are interesting reasons to watch, there are reasons to listen, and we'll, of course, be covering the Red Sox all season as if they're a playoff team, right? We're going to be that in-depth with them all year like we always are. But, you know, Buster doesn't feel overly optimistic, and I don't either right now. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. The rare two-guest show, the rare back-to-back guests on a show. Freddie Coleman, ESPN Radio. He's going to join us next on the Brady Farkas Show on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Parker Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEBRadio.com.
1: Yeah, yeah. All
0: right, welcome back. in am Brady show right here on WDEV AM and radio.com Appreciate Buster Olney for stopping by with us a little while ago. And, yes, I have to find a way to get to Toronto. When I said about Danny and I playing hooky, Corm looked at me from the other room like, uh, really? I'm like, well, okay, wouldn't be hooky. would be a work trip. It'd be a work trip. We'd go to Toronto. We'd do some recon and research for the Red Sox play there. The very rare two-guest back-to-back guest show, but i got to get out to Freddie Coleman, our ESPN radio insider over at Freddie and Harry. We love talking. Freddie freddy every single week usually on a wednesday today he talks with us on a thursday uh want to talk a lot about the nba with freddy freddy's with us now quorum says all right freddy thank you for being with us how are you
2: I'm good, Brother Brady. How's everything with you?
0: Everything is good. The Celtics have the best record in the NBA, number one seed as of right now in the Eastern Conference. And look, they made it interesting the other night against Indiana um, after coming back from making it interesting the night prior against New Orleans. I was talking about this with producer Danny yesterday. It really bothers me that in the NBA, a double-digit lead means nothing. And because I am, I am somebody that thinks if you have a double digit lead, you should be able to hold it, even if it's the NBA. But you know, Celtics down 11 at the half against New Orleans the other day means nothing. Up big against Indiana the other day means nothing. I just, it bothers me, Freddie.
2: Well, it can bother you, but I think it underscores exactly how talented those guys are in the NBA because You may be able to keep somebody down, but when you have that talent level and that offensive skill level and the rules being in place of the offenses, leads can disappear really, really quickly. I don't care if you're the Golden State Warriors. I don't care if you're the Sacramento Kings. I don't care if you're the Brooklyn Nets. And I think it goes to the NBA understands offensive basketball. And with the rules in place to make sure the offensive basketball is not going to be restricted, it can bother you. But you got to understand the skill set of those players. You can't leave them open. You can't allow them to get downhill and get those mismatches that teams can take advantage of. And that's why you see Lee's disappearing no matter who you are.
0: Freddie, I was thinking about this, and I've been thinking about this for a while, and it might sound a little nutty, but I need your opinion on it. I understand why – This stuff won't happen because of the logistics and just how much it would cost to change everything all around the country at all levels. But I almost wonder if we as humans have outgrown and have gotten too athletic for the fields and court sizes that we play on. Like, I just look at basketball now, and I'm thinking, these dudes are playing on the same size court that 15-year-olds play on. And I just wonder, should the court be longer? Should the three-point line be four feet back? Like Something has to be done, I would think, to curb offense in a lot of these sports. And I'm like, not every pitcher needs to throw 102 miles an hour. Maybe move the mound back three feet and make everything 97. I just wonder if we've gotten too big for our fields of play.
2: Yeah, I disagree with that because even if you move, let's say you move the line back in the NBA or in any level of basketball or you extend the football field, you don't think that athletic bodies won't adjust to that because we've seen that time and time again. When they lowered the pitching mound back in the 60s in Major League Baseball, they were able to adjust. And the batters wound up adjusting, even though the ERAs were lower and lower and the batting averages got lower and lower as well. It got to a certain point that they adjusted and they said, okay, let's raise the pitching mound to make it more of a level playing field. I don't think you need to change anything because even though evolution is going to continue to expand. Now, your point might be valid to me. If all of a sudden we got eight-foot-one point guards out there looking <laughs> <laughs> My Big person from Sesame Street, then that's a whole different conversation. But as long as everybody's between those heights, and I know you're going to have those outliers, like the Victor Wimbyama, what he's been able to do at the San Antonio Spurs, even though that team is complete garbage around him, but do you believe they're going to fix that? Or in the National Football League, where outside linebackers and tight ends get bigger and better and faster each and every year. I'm not an advocate for changing that because that evolution has happened, but not to the point where guys and ladies are too big for the courts and the fields that they're playing on right
0: now four players score over 60 last week in the nba a couple guys over 70 uh, a lot of people talking about this nationally right now freddie do you mm-hmm. like all the scoring in the nba or do you prefer some guardrails be put in place
2: I wouldn't mind seeing a guardrail put in place that I'm not saying to go to clutching and grabbing when it comes to defense, but I honestly believe that it should not be skewed that much that you can't guard somebody really tough in the NBA. And I think the inconsistency, with the officials calling the game like that because plenty of times they'll let an offensive player have their way and then we have a situation down the stretch between the Golden State Warriors and the Los Angeles Lakers on Saturday where Steph Curry clearly got fouled going to the basket and no call happened in favor of Golden State. I think they play a lot of that mix and match where, okay, let's let the offenses have their way, but in the final three to four minutes of an NBA game and sometimes even the final two minutes of a quarter, all of a sudden they call things a little looser where or the defense, things are called a little tighter to help out the defense. I think that kind of guardrail should be put in place, that there should be some kind of physicality and some kind of contact. As long as you're not causing a disadvantage against the defensive player or the offensive player, it can't be, okay, we're going to let the players decide the game. They've been doing that the first 46 minutes. You should not put that in their hands or think you have to put that in their hands in the final two minutes.
0: Brady Coleman, Freddie and Harry, ESPN Radio, with us here on the Brady Farkas Show, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. I've been on team draft a quarterback at the number three pick in the draft from the start. Mm-hmm. I am curious though, what do you think Justin Fields would cost in a trade?
2: I would think a second and third rounder. I would not give up a first rounder for Justin Fields because even though I don't mind what I've seen, but I still think there's a lot of growth that has to be there, no matter what kind of competitor that we've seen from a Chicago Bears quarterback or soon to be ex-Chicago Bears quarterback in Justin Fields. But if somebody says, I want a first rounder or two first rounders, you hang up the phone. I like Justin Fields. I don't like him like him that much, the part with two first rounders. If you get like a second or a third rounder, a third and a fourth rounder, you make that trade anything above that like a first and second rounder i would not do that if i'm the new england pages or anybody else
0: are you surprised bill belichick is going to get left out of this hiring cycle not surprised stunned to be completely honest with you because i
2: remember the conversation you and i had a couple weeks ago that if you're the Atlanta falcons you're not talking to a guy like that twice and saying now we're good but that's exactly what they did and i wonder i don't wonder i know that the age of bill belichick is going to be held against them because if you're a building team there's no guarantee that he's going to be there to see it through when he's going to be 72 years of age before this spring season starts here on planet Earth. So if you're the Atlanta Falcons, or you believe you're coaching quarterback away, but you don't have that quarterback, you may not want to put that in the hands of Bill Belichick, where the old school way may not work for your future. Look at Mike McDonald being hired by the Seattle Seahawks today. He got a six-year contract. He's not 40 years of age. I think NFL teams have told Bill Belichick. The situation that's going to be best for you is a ready-made situation where you got a quarterback, you got an offense, you got a defense, you got a winning team, but they need somebody like you to get them over that hump. When it comes to the Atlanta Falcons or the Carolina Panthers or teams like that, they were looking for somebody to build and have that future and not have somebody whose future is already past when it comes to Bill Belichick and coaching in the NFL.
0: Freddie, I'm, I don't mean to sound entitled because I feel very, very fortunate and honored to have had the memories and opportunities to cover four Super Bowls and go to four Super Bowl media weeks. I am thrilled to death I am not going to this Super Bowl media week. This will be the what? most unbearable Super Bowl media night in the history of the planet. Because Why? I- because of the Taylor Swift angle. I have no problem with Taylor Swift, and I think everybody who gets worked up about her is far too much. But what I can't right. take is a million people at media night asking everybody their favorite Taylor Swift song and stuff. I was annoyed before. Yeah. One time, Dante, I was trying to talk to Dante Fowler or the Rams before they played the Patriots in the Super Bowl, and I had to wait like 20 minutes behind a grown man dressed as a baby trying to get him to eat Mexican <laughs> chocolate-covered grasshoppers. That was enough for me. I didn't. I don't need to be a part of what's coming next week.
2: You know Brady, I'm gonna co-sign with you on that one because I'm with you. Taylor Swift and her presence at a football game, or football games, with Travis Kelsey being her boo has never bothered me, and I don't know why people are getting so exercised and worked up. And some people tried to make it political, which really makes no sense to me. It's just a young lady who's going to a football game where her boyfriend is playing, and he's playing for a team that has made that has made the conference championship game the last six years. If that bothers you, that's a you problem. That's not a Taylor Swift problem, but all the excess and all the extra after that, man, I'm totally, totally with you because it's not so much about her. It's the reaction from everybody. It's a lot of that in the media. And when you get that, Coming together on media day, that's going to be a perfect storm to drive me away from that and drive you away from that. So believe me, you are not alone on that line as far as that goes, Brady. I am 100% with you.
0: The best Super Bowl media night story that I have is actually one, Freddie, I was actually a fan, right? I was a fan Uh the year before I got into business. Seahawks-Broncos, when the Seahawks won the Super Bowl, it was in New York. Or at Barclays Center or something like that. But you got I little would. headphones that you got to listen to the Super Bowl Media Day coverage. And uh-huh. somebody asked former Seahawks fullback in, of the NFL network, Mike Robinson, they said, hey, we're, you know, New York, New Jersey, Super Bowl. Who are your favorite housewives? New York or New Jersey? And he goes, I like my wife the best. <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and, and that was the best answer to a Super Bowl Media Night <laughs> stupid question I'd ever heard.
2: Because that's one of the dumbest questions I've ever heard as well. <laughs> Why are you going to ask somebody who does not live in New York or New Jersey, if you had intel that he watched either one of those shows, that's one thing. But to just throw that question out there, uh, thinking that's going to be a gotcha question, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> that was SOS stuck on stupid as far
0: as that goes. <laughs> that was great. Freddie, you're the best. We'll catch up next week as always, and uh, look forward to it already. Thank you. i uh, Always appreciate you, Brady. You take care and be well, my brother. That was Freddie Coleman, our ESPN Radio guy over at Freddie and Harry. He is uh, he is awesome. A lot of stuff in there about the I wish we had time to break down everything right now. We don't unfortunately because we got to get out to high school basketball in a second. We can do some of this tomorrow though. Freddie not a huge fan of the proliferation of scoring in the NBA. Doesn't get worked up about double digit leads getting blown by the Celtics like I do or even or just in the NBA in general. And also very good stuff on the Patriots' offensive coordinator search, which continues on here. So we will uh, break all of that down tomorrow. And uh, yes, I'm not. I, I I'm glad Freddie agrees with me about Super Bowl Media Week because I can't do it. And, again, I have no problem with Taylor Swift. Zero problem with her. Zero problem with her relationship. Happy there, happy. Doesn't bother me when she gets shown on the screen. Doesn't bother me when she gets talked about. But I can't be a part of that scene. These Seriously, standing behind Dante Fowler, waiting to talk to him about real football, with somebody trying to get into to have Mexican grasshoppers, that, that was enough for me. Like I was out on Super Bowl media day and night at that point. Um, but the, seriously, the Mike Robinson answer, that was the best, right? Real quick, I was up at the top, not top row, but the top deck at, uh, I think it was the Barclays Center. And yeah, we were watching, um, you know, listening to me, my buddy Zach and I were listening to guys. Cause you can't go around the dial and go to the different podiums as he was talking and Mike Robinson was there. They said, yeah, which housewife do you like better? <laughs> New Jersey or New York? He goes, I like my wife. That was an all-timer. I will never forget that. So thanks to Freddie Coleman as well. All of these interviews available on the Brady Farkas Show podcast channel. Big UVM games tonight. I cannot, I'm cannot. i actually grateful for high school basketball bumping us a little early today so I can go watch both these UVM games. Men and women, I'm going to watch both of them. We'll break them down tomorrow. Catamounts and Great Danes battle for first place in the America East on the women's side. That will be a great one uh, down at uh, what it used to be the Sefkew Arena, now the uh, Broadview Center or something like that. High school hoops with Brent. Curtis is next on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVRadio.com.